Hey, welcome to Lakeview Sermon of the Week. We're so grateful to have you here, and we hope you enjoyed today's message. Thank you, Lord. What do y'all want to talk about? Oh, anatomy of an adversary. Thank you. Uh, you know, I'm just really getting a lot of joy of exposing the devil and uh, exposing him for who he really is. And I think what it comes down to, um, what Satan really wants us to do or wants to accomplish is to make us feel like we're so separated or we're so lost that we can never be redeemed. And I think God wants, to, God wants to show us that there's no problem too big that we can create that God can't unravel it and get to the root of it and help us to do it. Um, because at the heart of it all, I think, is separation, right? Because uh, when we read about this is kind of convoluted, but we'll just try to patch this all together. Scripture is like a tapestry. And you can't just take one scripture and form your whole thoughts on one scripture, right? We got to take the whole counsel of the word of God to get our picture of who the devil is, who Satan is, because it's really a developed idea that, that develops from from Genesis and the idea gets a little bit more legs on it, a little bit more bones to it, a little more flesh on it, and then comes to its fullness in, in Revelation. And so we have the privilege that we get to look backwards through Revelation and rewind back to Genesis so that we get this kind of more complete picture of, of who Satan is, of, of who our adversary is. But I think at the heart of it, what he really wants to do is he wants to make us feel like everything's hopeless and that he wants to create in our mind this idea that we're so separated from God we can never be reconciled. Or we're so messed up we can never be healed. We're so, we're so far gone that there's, that there's no hope. And if he can ever plant that lie and plant that untruth in your mind and you buy it, then you never pursue God. You just partner with the lie and it, and it just directs your whole life. And so really what Jesus really tries to do with coming in with the truth, when we feel like truth is coming, we feel like, uh-oh, here comes the truth, right? Um, it's like the game truth or dare. We'd rather do dare a lot of times, right? <laughs> it's like, don't ask me. I don't want to tell you whatever. It's like the truth is scary. But the truth is the thing that actually what God uses to make us free is that the truth is not getting at something that's going to bring more separation. It's actually getting at something that removes separation so that I can walk into the reality of what I actually am and who I am in him. So unless truth comes in, we'll always partner with a lie and we'll always live according to this other thing or we'll create a lie big enough that will fool everybody, but it can never really fool the Lord. 
So Satan's trying to create separation. That's what he wants to do. He doesn't like the connection that we have with God. But I love the conclusion that the Apostle Paul comes to in Romans 8, where he says, For I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor any other created thing can separate me from the presence and love of God that's manifested in Christ. So when you get convinced of that reality, that nothing can separate you, you now realize that you have the power. Because you know the only thing mentioned there that couldn't separate you from God? You. You are the only one that can separate yourself from God. Quit blaming the devil that he separated you from God. God has given you the steering wheel and said, you have a steering wheel. You have a will in your life. You can will yourself into a relationship with me and choose me at any time. But if Satan can get you to think you don't have power, you don't have control, you don't have a right, you're not a son, you're not a daughter, you'll never use that will to will yourself into God. You'll only use that will to uh, drive yourself in the opposite direction because you partner with a lie that you're so separated you can never be joined to him. So God would say, here's the power. Here's the gospel message where you get a chance to respond, bow a knee to King Jesus, and now you're in the family. No more separation. So the principalities and powers, as mentioned in that, is at, is, is at work to try to convince us they're more powerful than your choice and that they can separate you from God. That Satan is all talk. He's like Goliath. He looks real big and like talks real big. Uh, but it's something that big that takes him out. That I think about Daniel 2. Where Daniel sees a rock cut out of a mountain sees a stone cut out of a mountain without hands. And that stone rolls down the mountain and hits the big statue made of gold, made of iron, made of bronze and clay, made of all these things that represent the nations of the earth. This big metal, precious metal, all the the empires of the world And this little stone rolls down a hill and knocks it all and crumbles it all. That the Lord uses the little and insignificant to bring down the boastful, brash, arrogant, showy that is the world. That a 30-year-old homeless Jewish construction worker who didn't even have a place to lay his head topples the nations of the earth (laughs) and redeems the world. 
See, God is showing us what real power is. So there's some clues here that we're going to see in our text today, several texts, that give us some clues on how Satan operates and what his goal is and, and where does he find footholds in the earth to try to sow his evil and in his, his wares. Um, we'll start in Isaiah chapter 14. If you got your Bible, we'll have it on the screen behind us if you don't. But this is kind of a, a, one of the first pictures that we, that we see. We, we, get a, we get a clue about uh, some kind of being in the garden, but that one is called a serpent, okay? The Nakash. But it's actually a play on words that Nakash in three different tenses can mean three different things. Uh, Nakash as a noun can mean something, Nakash as an adjective can mean something, and Nakash as a verb can mean something. It's in, in the language, it's called a triple entendre. It means a word that has three different meanings. So when we read in Genesis 3, the Nakash, the serpent, it can mean serpent, it can mean shining one, or it can mean a seraph. Now when we think about Isaiah chapter 6, we see these beings that are around the throne called these burning ones or these seraphs who are around the throne of God and what do they say day and night? Whoa, we got some scholars up in here. I wasn't ready for that. I thought I was going to call on Miss Barbara over here. Miss Brenda, sorry. Um, so we get some clues. So like I'm saying, this is patchwork. So this one, this seraph, serpent, shining one, burning one, we're now getting an idea. Because how many serpents do you know that talk? Never, never heard of one. <laughs> they just go, <laughs> and do that little tongue thing. <laughs> no vocal cords. So we get a clue about some kind of being that is rebellious. So then we, when we see Isaiah 6, we see these seraphim around the throne. We get an idea of that's probably one of those beings rebelled and came and deceived Adam and Eve. So here's the lostness of, this, of a being like this. Now, Isaiah gives us a picture here, right? So it had six wings, remember? With two they flew, with two they hid their feet, and with two they hid their eyes. Um, but then we get another picture to where there's eyes all over their body. So there's a picture here of worship, because these beings are created to worship, and they're created to see God. Why eyes all over their body? Well, eyes all over their body is because you can't see God with these eyes. We walk by faith, not by? Okay. So with the intuitive nature of a soul, you see God. They're flying because there's this upward motion of upwardness and holiness and then they cover their feet with two to hide their creatureliness. The fact that everything's created except God. 
So there's this beautiful picture of worship, of what it looks like to worship God. Now, how does a creature lay eyes on the God of the universe and think, I've got a better way? Well, this leads us to some conclusions. Sounds like angels might have free will. If they can't choose, are they really worshiping God? So is there a heavenly host that can actually choose who they're going to serve and what they're going to do? Now, what would have provoked this kind of a jealousy to leave the throne room in the courts of God and come to earth in order to cause the chaos that we see in the world today? Well, we get a little clue. Isaiah gives us a clue. And he's prophesying in Isaiah 14 about the king of Babylon. Okay? And as he's prophesying about this king of Babylon, he goes to this other place and begins to talk about the fall of Satan himself. Okay? So he talks about a king in his arrogance, the king of Babylon, and in his pride becomes puffed up, and then he compares the pride that happened in this king that puffed him up, and then he begins to give us a little snippet, an insight of the character of Satan, okay? So Isaiah 14, and, then, and he kind of flips this uh, kind of prophecy at about verse 12. Isaiah 14, verse 12, it says, How you have fallen from heaven... Morning star, son of the dawn. Does anybody's version say Lucifer there? Yeah, so, so your older translation, so this is a debate among scholars. Was this a proper name or was this a title? Um, Lucifer is actually from a Latin translation. And it rendered it as a proper name in the Latin Vulgate. That's a whole other, just scratch anything I said right there. That's a private conversation over coffee when we have several hours. I just need you to trust me on this one. That probably the better translation there is basically um, Morning Star, Son of the Dawn. Um, Morning star, son of the dawn, you have been cast down to the earth. You who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights on Mount Zephon, I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to the realm of the dead. Can I get an amen there? Yeah. To the depths of the pit. So here we see the shining one, the morning star, the Halel ben Shakar, uh, which would... Actually, um, okay, so we're going to have to get in our ancient minds. Can we just rewind our minds like NASA never happened and like we never under, went looked through a telescope? Can we go back to that place? Okay, ancient minds. 
When an ancient mind looked up and saw the sky, they didn't see stars because they didn't know that there was, they were balls of burning gas. Okay? So when the ancient mind saw stars, that was their framework to give them pictures that there was a spiritual realm that they could not see and could not touch, but that was real and was affecting their reality around them. So when they saw stars, shining stars, morning stars, what they were seeing was the planet Venus, which was the last star before the sun came up. So they were comparing this sun of the dawn, this morning star was this representation of this glorious light right before the sun. It was the last light that an ancient eye could have seen with the naked eye. And so the picture here is planets, stars, okay? So what we call Lucifer, not a proper name, it is this picture of a spiritual celestial being that was a morning star, the last star before the dawn of the next day. So we see this theme beginning to unravel and we begin to see morning star mentioned over and over in scripture. And typically it's always denoting Satan. Okay? It's always talking about this one who's going to fall. But then we get a twist in the book of Revelation. But we're not there yet. Okay? So you'll see the twist at the end. So we see this kind of idea. Now notice here, the prophecy or the revelation of this Lucifer, the son of the dawn, the spiritual being that fell, is laid over this prophecy about a king. So what does this tell us about the place that Satan likes to enter into? He loves to enter into power structures so that he can influence and, and dissuade multitudes. Who was it that murdered Jesus? Don't shout me down here. You're almost scared to say, right? Because you're like, my sin did it. It's like, well, yeah, kind of, but you know who did it? The Roman Empire colluded with the Jewish religious elite, and they murdered Jesus. So where do you think Satan likes to enter into? Empire and religion. Religion and empire. That's where he likes to go in. Why? Because that's where he can do the most damage. Because who steers a nation? Who's in charge? Who steers the heart of a people towards God or not? Churches. So if he can get a foothold in these two realities, that's why Jesus is king and priest. Because he's redeeming the governmental and he's redeeming the spiritual. But it only happens in the reality of him. It'll never happen in a political party. It only happens in King Jesus 
when he steps foot on this soil and comes back. So government now is a necessary evil. Romans 13 tells us that. God puts them into place to do the right thing so that they bear the sword and execute the judgment of God. But when they don't, as John Locke said, we can appeal to heaven and say, there's a higher authority than this authority. And God, we need you to intervene and, to, and act on our behalf. So what Satan would want us to get our minds and focus on is to think that the real power is political and religious. But Jesus comes into the middle of our systems and the corruption of it all. And in the middle of the system, the system kills him. But three days later, he raises from the dead. <laughs> he blows up the systems from the inside out. And his resurrection is the coronation of a new king. Of a new day. And his death, his burial, and his resurrection was the first steps in the age to come in the kingdom of God manifesting itself on the earth. So once Satan, that's why the Bible says that if the principalities and powers would have knew, known, they would have never killed Jesus. Think about how evil they are. If they would have known they wouldn't have killed Jesus, they would have killed everybody who tried to kill Jesus. That's how evil they are. It's like, oh, this is the guy. Get rid of him. But had they gotten news, they would have killed everybody that would have tried to crucify him. See, Satan doesn't care. He's not building some great thing. He wants to tear it all and burn it all to the ground. And he's looking for power structures to find it. That's why James says, be careful of you. Try not too many of you need to become teachers. Why? Does God not want teachers? No, but he knows if you get in the area of influence, guess who? There's a target on your back now. I know, I feel the same way, baby. Can't work with these people. <laughs> but that's the, uh, that's the reality. That's what, that's where he likes to go. That's why he likes to start with backbiting, gossip, whispers in the night. And what are those whispers looking? I think the demons are trying to take those things and put them in the ear of someone that has power so that then maximum damage can be done. That's why we have to so protect the unity that we have as a church. Like, we just have to. Because if Satan can get in just a little bit, man, he can burn it to the ground. And so this is the place where he likes to go. Uh, the power structures. Uh, the power structures of men. So this is why this is blended in with the king. Oddly enough, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, remember he exalted himself? And God was like, hey, the reason why I put you in power 
is because God's people messed up and I'm using you as my tool to judge them. <laughs> Don't get it twisted and think it was because of your greatness that you became in charge. And then Nebuchadnezzar looks out at his empire one day. He's got his chest out and he says, oh man, look what I've done. And Nebuchadnezzar loses his mind, goes out into the field as a what? As a beast for how long? Seven years. What's the Antichrist called? The beast. How long has he, he got his little day? Oh, okay. We're putting the things. You see what I'm saying? This is a tapestry. We've got to put it all together. So anything that would exalt itself above God is a beast. What does a beast want to do? A beast wants to rip the flesh off you, eat you, and destroy you. What animal is Jesus portrayed as? The book of Revelation, 29 times he's called the lamb. See, a lamb dies for and his food on the table. A beast devours those who are at the table. So God's showing us what it looks like, what the authentic looks like, and what the fake and phony looks like. What's beastly is that which would exalt itself above God. What's godlike is that which offers its life for the betterment of all. So some pictures here. Ezekiel 28, verse 11 through 19. Ezekiel gives us a little bit of a picture here. The Lord's message came to me, son of man. Sing a lament for the king of Tyre. Again, a king is mentioned, and then he goes into this other realm talking of Satan. And say to him, this is what the sovereign Lord says. You were the sealer of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Well, you think that was the king of Tyre? Was he in Eden? Mm -mm. We're talking about the original deceiver. You were the sealer of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The ruby, topaz, and emerald. The chrysolite, onyx, and jasper, the sapphire, the turquoise, and beryl. Your settings and mounts were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. I placed you there with an anointed guardian cherub. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked about amidst the fiery stones. You were blameless in your behavior from the day you were created until sin was discovered in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I defiled you and banished you from the mountain of God. The guardian cherub expelled you from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom on account of your splendor. I threw you down to the ground. I placed you before kings that they might see you. By the multitude of your iniquities, through the sinfulness of your trade, you desecrated your sanctuaries. So I drew fire out from within you, it consumed you, and I turned you into ashes on the earth before the eyes of all who saw you. 
All who know you among the peoples are shocked at you. You have become terrified and will be no more. So here we see another prophecy about a king. So, so what does this tell us? Anytime we exalt ourselves before God, we enter into allegiance with Satan and partnership with the devil. Say, Matt, that's stern because these are just little white lies I'm telling. No. (laughs) Anything where God says go this way and you go that way, you have just aligned yourself and put yourself in league with the devil. And you have just vacated your rightful place and authority with God and you've just partnered with Satan to become one with the dust. <laughs> you say, man, that's too, that's too stern. Well, maybe the Bible will convince you. Matthew 16, Peter gets a vision of who Jesus is. God the Father speaks to Peter's heart and he says, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the one that is to come. You're the Son of God. And Jesus is shocked, right? Because... Peter got it right for once. Right? It's like, whoa, wow. He's like, breath, whoa, my breath's taken away. And he says, Simon, blood, Simon uh, Barjona, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven is who has revealed this to you. And he says, upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. And he starts speaking all this kind of powerful stuff over Peter. Well, after Peter gets that statement and says it publicly within the group of disciples, Jesus says, okay, now I can tell him this other part. Hey, guys, guess what's going to happen? I'm going to be handed into the hands of sinful men, and they're going to murder me. But don't fear, because in three days, I'm going to raise from the dead, and it's all going to be victorious. So I'm just giving you a heads up. Peter takes Jesus and pulls him aside and says, come here, Jesus, we need to talk. Probably puffed up from the last cool thing that happened where God said, you're the rock that I'm going to build the church on and all that stuff. He pulls Jesus out and says, hey, Jesus, I need you to quit talking about this crucifixion thing. Yep, the morale of the team's way down. We're never going to build this mega church you keep talking like this. We're, you're not going to be king with this crucifixion talk. It's scaring the guys, Okay. So I need you to just drop that crucifixion talk. I need you to drop that murder thing and that, this rough thing. that you. I need you to just drop all that. We don't need that part. We got it without all that. And Jesus turns to Peter and says, get behind me. For you don't even know the things of God. Which tells us what? That you can prophesy correctly but still be in league with Satan and you're operating in a gift and you've got no character or submission to the things of God in your life. That he could say, not get behind me, Peter, because that wasn't Peter's destiny. That wasn't who he really was. That was the lie Satan had convinced him. Self-sufficiency, safety, uh, it's all about me. It's all about my personal feelings and what. God says, no, that's not some cute little thing about you. That's satanic. Anything outside of the plan of God, satanic. I don't care how cute you think it is. 
I don't care how little you thought it to be. It aligns us in league with Satan. And it keeps us from relationship with God. So get behind me, Satan, for you don't know the things of God. So notice, when did Satan come in? As soon as Jesus promoted Peter to the rock to which the church was going to be built on. So when do you think he's going to come after you? As soon as you begin to start walking in your calling and get a little sobriety and get a little... I know better than everybody. I'm more spiritual. And then he can... Here's when you know you're in trouble when Satan starts agreeing with you. <laughs> no opposition. When he's just like, yeah, go for it. <laughs> okay. Going the same direction. If you're not bumping into Satan, you're going the same direction. You better be bumping into him. Y'all didn't ask for all that. Too bad. <clears throat> All right, let's hurry up and wrap this up. Get y'all out of here. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 17 and 19. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when that voice was conveyed to him by the majestic glory. This is Peter writing about his experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my dear son in whom I am delighted. When this voice was conveyed from heaven, we ourselves heard it for we were with him on the holy mountain. Moreover, we possess the prophetic word as an altogether reliable thing. You do well if you pay attention to this as you would to a shining light in a murky place. Now remember what we talked about first, the morning star. Here we go. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So now, the language of, used for Satan has been pulled here, and now it's used for Jesus. So what does this tell us? Who does Satan want to imitate? Antichrist isn't no to Christ. It's more better translated, instead of Christ. That Satan wants you to get to listen to his voice beyond Jesus so that you'll trust him as your Savior. What is the satanic voice? The voice within your flesh that comes from your sinful nature on the inside. So he says, the morning star, the one that's really coming in the darkest part of the night, that's Jesus. But before it actually happens, I need that to rise in your heart where you live your life with the reality that there's a coming a king that's conquered everything, that will conquer everything, and will wipe every tear and set up his kingdom. And I need that to rise in your heart before it becomes a reality out here. That the reality has to start here and has to set up shop here before it can set up shop in the outward places of the influence that we're trying to lead people into. Now watch this, Revelation chapter 2. 
Get this. All right, this gets even better. This gets really sweet. You ready? This gets real sweet. Revelation chapter 2, verse 26 and 28. And to the one who conquers and who continues in my deeds until the end. Okay, you ready? This is about the overcomers. Who wants to overcome? Okay, this is for you. All three people that raise their hand, this is for you. All three of us, we're going to get there. I will give him authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod and like clay jars, he will break them to pieces. Now watch this. Just as I've received the right to rule from my father, and I will give him the what? So guess who God's going to hand over for you to do whatever you want to with them? The devil. The one that's postured as if he's in all this control, God says, nah. He's a nothing. He's a nobody. I, yeah, I'll give you that. We say, well, that sounds kind of outlandish. Well, this is Paul's argument. Like I said, this is a tapestry, okay? You've got to... Let's just take some time to put together. But 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul's going off on the church because they keep suing each other, and the world sees that they can't even settle conflicts within themselves. So the world's, uh, their example, their testimony to the world is so tarnished because they can't settle disputes within themselves. That doesn't sound like a church. That must have been, that must have been them Corinthian bunch. And he said, would you stop doing that because you're making yourself look real foolish. And he doesn't lower the bar to say, oh, it's okay. You guys, you know, you're just figuring it out. You're baby Christians. He doesn't do any of that. You know what he does? He raises the bar and points to them to the expectation that God has for them and the overcoming. And the ones that overcome, he, he pulls them into this reality. And look what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3. Do you not know that we will judge who? So when every matter that we come to is an opportunity to prepare us for the day that we'll judge angels. So now we get an insight why Satan doesn't like us. He's like, I got all the beauty. How come these guys get all the power? And this is the place where Satan will slip himself into He'll either put somebody over you that drives you crazy to get you to run off or he'll put you in charge and get in your head that you need to be heavy-handed and tell everybody what they ought to be doing. That's how he works. That's why the Bible says, work, do all things as unto who? Because who else is worthy to work for? <laughs> Kidding me? Do all things is unto the Lord. And this is the pattern that is preparing us for the age that we'll judge angels. All right. Now here's where the whole thing gets flipped on its head. Revelation 22 verse 16. And this is Jesus talking. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. 
I am the root and the descendant of David, the who? The bright morning star. So the devil's the morning star, but Jesus is the bright morning star. So he really rubs it in, right? He's like, oh, yeah, morning star guy. Yeah, no, I'm going to take that title too, and I'm going to make it the bright morning star. So the whole of the scripture is to get us to realize we actually have the power. We're going to actually judge angels. That we actually have more power than Satan does. And so Satan's whole MO is to get you to feel powerless, weak, lost, no hope. And the more you operate in that fear, the more flesh you put on Satan. So Satan's only as big as the fear that you operate in and give him. I'm looking for the day when the church's Jesus is bigger than their Satan. There's a moment in Jude where Jude, (laughs) I love this. There's a moment where Jude gives us some insight about what happened to Moses when he died. And he says that the archangel and Satan fought over the body of Moses. I'm not crazy. It's in there. Book of Jude. No chapters. It's just one snippet. Jesus' brother, take it up with him. I'm telling you, it's in there. Jude says that Satan and and Michael are wrestling over Moses' body. I mean, what did that look like? Was it like, was Moses like, was he in there? Was he already in heaven? What was going on here? Was this like a stretch Armstrong? Ah, you ever had that? And do you know what Michael told him? Michael looked at Satan and said, the Lord rebuke you. He said, I'm not even wasting my time with my rebuke. The Lord rebuke you. What if every time Satan stuck his head up, we didn't get all distracted and put all our emphasis on him as if he's bigger than Jesus? What if we just said, the Lord rebuke you? And went on giving Jesus all the praise and all the majesty and all the attention. What if every call I got was to say, hey, pastor, I just called you. Can we take a moment and just glorify Jesus for a moment? I've never gotten that call. (laughs) You know what I get? Man, it's bad. Satan's after me. I want to say, I don't even know if he'd send a worn out devil after you, to be honest.
Is that okay? Sorry. I need some good rest, maybe. Maybe maybe I'm in the flesh here. I don't know. But I'm just like, we think that like, think about those devils. Paul I know and Jesus I know, but who are you? What? Satan's after you? No. You had a bad day. You ran over a nail. You got a flat tire, dude. It's called life. You left your hogging dolls in the back seat and you locked your keys in your car and it melted. Like, devil's not after you, dude. <laughs> I sat down and there was no toilet paper. Look first. <laughs> look first. I don't know why we don't do that, but just look first. This is getting bad. Okay. The Lord rebuke you, Satan, and then we're just going to give God all the glory and all the praise. And what if every time he come after us, we just lifted our hands and say, God, we just thank you right now for how wonderful and how beautiful you are. And then he's like, wait a minute, I want some attention over here. Because that's what the demons want. That's when they show out. You ever seen a demon show out in a deal? They're not powerful. They make people slither and do weird. Just you're like, what is this? What is this even happening right now? Because they just want attention. It's all they want. To get your gaze off of Jesus and to get you to think that they're more powerful than what they are, but they're not. They're defeated foes. So let's just pray. Lord, we just look at Satan and say, the Lord rebuke you. (laughs) I ain't got time for this. (laughs) Um, And Jesus, we just lift you up. God, we don't let the power structures that are over us or under us corrupt us to keep us from being you, the one who washes feet, the one who's pegged to a cross, naked and shamed. That, God, we emulate you in the earth. We emulate you in the earth, that you're the definition of beauty, that you're the definition of power, that you're the definition of humility, that you're the definition of everything good. So God, let us find our expression in your life and everywhere we go and everything that we do, God, let us just put you to the forefront of it all. So we come into agreement right now that the principalities and powers are defeated foes and that they cannot separate us from the love of God found in Christ Jesus. That our sin can't separate us from the love of God found in Christ Jesus so we can cry out in repentance and say, God, I turn from that and I turn back to you. And you hear, and you move, and you do. God, let us have confidence in you that you're bigger than the devil. That he's the morning star, but you're the bright and morning star. God, rise in our hearts first so that we can live like we know we've already won. 
living from victory, not for victory. God bless my friends today. Every lie that Satan's whispered in their ear, they're not good enough, they can't do it. Don't let them do that to you. You gotta stand up for all this other stuff. That's, those are lies. You'll vindicate us, God. Our duties just act like you. So we give you every hurt, every wrong, everything. We just put it in your hands and say, God, you take it. <laughs> You'll do what's right. I won't. I'll mess it up. I'll make it worse. If we partner with Satan, we'll become an adversary. And you've called us to be brothers and sisters, not adversaries. God, we come into agreement. We are sons and daughters of the Most High God. And we don't have to perform to get your attention. We've got your attention in Jesus. And as it was spoken over Jesus, that this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, you're speaking that over us because we're in Jesus. That this is my beloved family whom I'm well pleased. So we believe the truth and not the lie. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Thanks for tuning in. Our hope is that these messages will help you on your journey of discovering who Christ is and who you are in Him. You can learn more about our ministry at lvahs.org or follow us on Instagram at lakeview.hs.